0: what do you do when god has called you to something well in one way the answer is quite simple our little friends in the back could answer it if god has called you to something you do it you get after it true but if we can reflect further for a moment this is one of those questions with an easy answer but living out that answer is often far more difficult so then on honest reflection we might answer a little bit differently. What do you do when God has called you to do something? I don't know how to start, so I never do. I rationalize and analyze and I complicate the issue till I'm just paralyzed. I feel so inadequate that I stay paralyzed by my fear of not following through. Or even, I don't like what he's called me to do. So I bristle against it and never get after it. And yet we do know that the simple answer is the right one. When God has called you to something, you just get after it. Getting after it may mean slowing down for further reflection. It may mean a time of preparation. It may mean seeking counsel. It may mean a hundred different things. But living under his good and gracious reign means that when he calls us to do something, we say, yes, Lord, and then take whatever steps to get after it. In our text today, we will see a time where God's people do respond to God's call and get after it. In Ezra Nehemiah, the Lord has called his people out of the discipline of exile to return to their land, to rebuild the temple, and ultimately to renew their commitment to the covenant with him, to be his people, and to be a light for the nations. In Ezra 3, we will see that they get off to a good start. God's people respond to him by committing to the mission, being concerned for his word, and celebrating his grace. In our day, the Lord has called us, his people, to build up the church, the family of God. He's he's called us to grow in Jesus, to help others grow in Jesus, and to continue to be a light to the nations, proclaiming the gospel here at home and to the ends of the earth. Or in shorthand, we could say glorifying God by making disciples of all nations. And so for us, this text beckons us to ask that simple question of ourselves of our families, and of our church, what are we doing with what God has called us to do? As we pick up our reading today, recall from last week that God's people were scattered in the exile because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. But now, by his grace, he's sovereignly moved and he's brought a remnant home, and they've come with a commission They've come with a task, rebuild the temple, live again as God's people, carry on with the task of being a light to the nations. And as we read, note how they get after first building the altar so that they can worship, then get after building the temple's foundation, and then note how they respond to him in worship for all that he is doing in their midst. And to help you situate the timeline, 3 one picks up about six months after they arrive back in the land. And then in verse 8, that turns to seven months or so after that. So here we go, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedak with his fellow priests, And Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required and after that the regular burnt offerings the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the lord from the first day of the 7th month they began to offer burnt offerings to the lord but the foundation of the temple of the lord was not yet laid so they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers." And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray. Father, help us now to hear your word and respond by getting after all, all that you've called us to do. Speak by your word and by your spirit to each of us here. Affirm in each of us a clarity of how you're calling us to be committed to your purposes. Father, renew our resolve now. And Father, do all of this for your glory. Amen. Uh, We see in this passage that the remnant that comes home gets off to a good start, heeding God's call on their life and seeking to respond faithfully. And before we turn to look at three specific applications for us, I think it's worth noting the overarching theme that is the umbrella for all of these points. What we find in Ezra chapter 3 is a people committed to living faithfully before God. Whereas they had previously been so unfaithful that God had to discipline them through the exile, now we find that they have heeded that discipline and make a new beginning to walk faithfully before God. And so the umbrella above all of these points is this, God's people are committed to God. In spite of the opposition that we see foreshadowed here, his people are committed to him. In spite of the daunting task of rebuilding from rubble, his people are committed to him. And in spite of all the difficulties that may lie ahead, God's people get off the blocks with a jackrabbit start. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that we don't always find in Israel a model to emulate. However, today is kind of a catch-me-doing-something-good kind of moment for Israel, where their faithfulness to God is to be commended and to be copied. So with that, uh, we can look at three calls of this passage today to us. First call of this passage today is the call to commit to God's mission, to get after it when God calls his people to do something, then the right response to living under his good and gracious reign is for his people to get after it. First note from verse 1, how we see that the people are gathered as one man to Jerusalem. This speaks to them being united in purpose, but it also speaks to their faithfulness. The seventh month is a high point of their worship calendar, and so we see them gathering just like they're supposed to. From verse 2, we see that while there, they arose and built. Arose and built. Arise and build is going to be a common refrain that we'll see throughout the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. We see it four more times Throughout this book, in Ezra 5.2, Nehemiah chapter 2, we see it twice, and Nehemiah 3.1, arise and build, arise and build. God's calling them to arise and build, and so they arose and built. Their building begins with the altar so that they will be able to resume worship, even in the interim, while they build the temple. Note here that there's an interesting note attached to verse 3. It says, they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Here we see the first mention of the opposition, which we will see full blown in chapter 4, and that will really run through the end of the book of Nehemiah. Here already, we see that as Israel comes home to their land, there are already people living in the land. And later in the book, we can see who these people are. They are non-Israelites, and there are certain Israelites who weren't deported uh, during the exile and who are not living faithfully. But here, what's important to note is that even in spite of the things that may hold them back from getting after God's mission, they're choosing to walk out in faith, building the altar as their response to the fear. And the wording suggests even that it was precisely because that they were opposed that they knew they needed to build the altar in order to rely on God's protection, Now, with the altar built, they can get after worshiping God faithfully, as we consider more fully in another point. Going on, we can note that they also got after building the temple. Down in the second half of verse 6, we see the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So then in verse 7, they get after obtaining the necessary supplies. Here we see a clear parallel to Solomon's own building of the first temple. And it seems intentionally written to show us the, contin- the, the continued nature of this project with Israel's past. In Second Chronicles 2, Solomon also sent food, drink, and oil to Tyre so that they could bring timber from Lebanon and send it to Jerusalem by the port of Joppa. Likewise, Solomon's temple was also begun in the second month in 1 Kings chapter 6. And so again, we're reminded by this continuity that God's plan goes forward. Down in verse 8, we read that Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua made a beginning. And then in verse 10, we see that the builders laid the foundation. In summary, they knew the work that God had commissioned them to do, and so they got after it. Today, our commission may look different, but our commitment to get after what God has called us to do must be the same as we see here in chapter 3. As we see in Ephesians chapter 2, the New Testament takes the temple language and applies it to the building up of the church, the family, the people of God. And therefore, as we said last week, and we'll repeat often throughout the series, When we see in Ezra and Nehemiah a call to build up the temple, we should hear for us a call to build up the church, the family of God. That's the parallel for us today. But listen, it's always, always been God's mission in the world that when he saves, he does so to then work through his people for the good of others. As far back as Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is blessed so that he would then be a blessing to the nations. Israel is set apart as a people so that they would be a light to the nations. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. He's been made new. We hear that and rightly we say, amen. Amen. Uh, At the end of the passage, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We hear that and we say amen. In the middle of those two precious promises is also a precious responsibility. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The Christian, every Christian is reconciled and then entrusted with the message of reconciliation called into his people so that you can then be an ambassador of Christ, whereby God makes his appeal through you for others to likewise be reconciled. You are blessed so that you can then be a blessing. Or take 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. You're set apart, called, elected even, not so that it would end with you, but so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are Calling to Christ is at the same time our commission from Christ to take the gospel to the world around us. That's the call on every believer's life. And so then the question is what do you do when God's called you to do something? We get after it. Church, how are we doing? We sought to stress early and often that our aim in planting Antioch Church was in order to better hold out the gospel to those in the area. And by God's power, we've seen much of that. But church, I I do want to call us to continuously ask ourselves if there are areas where we can grow to do this more and more. Individually, yes. Yes that call is on every christian regardless of gifting or personality and as a family we should ask are there ways my family can grow to do this more and more and as base groups we should ask repeatedly over and over again what are the ways we can grow as a base group to work together on mission are there ways your whole group can partner together in gospel with mission Are there ways Winder can work together to reach more people in Winder, as you were out there doing yesterday, putting out door hangers all around? Are there ways that Jefferson can work in Jefferson? Are there ways that the downtown-based group can work to reach more in the downtown area and so on? Are there ways members of your group might partner together to hold out the gospel? Maybe a few families banding together, maybe men banding together, maybe women banding together. Are there ways that you might work together in the task of evangelism? At the very minimum, and I really do think this is the minimum, we should be holding each other accountable to praying for and proclaiming the gospel to nonbelievers in our lives. Back in the fall, we talked about viewing the church in terms of church as organization and church as organism. And there we sought to emphasize that in terms of like building up the body. But the same holds true for evangelism. As an organization, we do have some things that we will do each year in terms of outreach. Things that we'll organize, things that staff will be devoted to, things that we're going to announce and recruit for and so on. But the real opportunity for growth, the more and more in evangelism, is through the church as organism, praying for, planning out, and executing your own evangelistic initiatives. And just like with discipleship, that's always going to be more lean, more quick to pull together, and lead to a proliferation of more and more evangelism. So then let's commit to an ongoing conversation in each of our base groups and beyond how we might spur one another on to more and more more evangelism and how we might work together in this precious task together. Last note before we move on, if we're going to live out this aspiration of what we call fervent evangelism, that's our aspiration, fervent evangelism. We need more folks to lead out in that. And certainly that ought to include our leaders. So fellow elders, staff, ministry leaders, and so on, we have to ask ourselves, can I say, follow me as I follow Jesus in the area of evangelism? If not, let's at least seek to say, follow me as I figure out how to follow Jesus here in this area. But it also goes further. If we're going to be fervently evangelistic, we also need others, members, to hear this call and be stirred to action. Church, would you just make a note to pray with me that God would raise up from our midst more people who so long to see the gospel going forth from us that they would dream, plan, employ creativity, and ultimately just try to do something that the gospel might go forth from us. Ask that God would be, by his spirit, stir up those kind of people in our midst. The first call of this passage is to commit to God's mission. The second call of this passage is concern for God's word. When the Christian hears God's word, they honor it by knowing it and obeying it. Note here how we see their concern for God's word. Their concern that God's work be done God's way. In verse 2 and 4, we see this repetition of as it is written. They built the altar so they could keep their offerings as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Then they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written. The Feast of Booths was a time for them to remember God's provision. And so it would have been particularly pertinent to their situation. And by following God's prescribed rhythm of worship, they receive his means of grace, reminding them of his provision. All of it comes, that means of grace comes through obeying God in his word. In verse three, we see that they set the altar in its place, show in its place, showing their concern that God's work be done according to God's word. In, v- in verse four, we see that they offered the daily burnt offerings according to the rule as each day required. And in verse five, we see that they were observing all the appointed feasts. On down into the rebuilding of the temple in verse 8 and 9, we see that they, when it came time for the laying of the foundation, they, got the, they appointed the Levites and the priests to supervise the work. The temple has to be built according to God's specifications. And so they ensured this by appointing these men who knew those specifications so, the super, so that they could be the supervisors of the work. And then on into the celebration, we see that even their response of worship was done according to the directions of David, king of Israel. In all of this, we see their concern for God's word. They honor it by knowing it and obeying it. Church, how is your concern for God's word? Are you growing in the knowledge of his word through times of personal worship and study are you growing in your understanding of his word through times of corporate study with others while we all know while we all know that we should be spending time in his word daily and while we even mention this often from the pulpit Because of that, I do think we can sometimes too quickly assume that we're doing that. As I've been part of small groups throughout my adult life, it can be be a surprisingly low number of Christians who have developed a healthy habit of personal worship. Going further, we will often justify that in ways that simply just don't hold up under reflection. So in a small group setting, we might say like, hey, are you spending time in God's word? And then someone will say something like, well, work's really busy right now. This season of life is really busy right now. I just can't keep up with the housework and everything we have going on at home. But church, with some reflection... Something about that sounds right on the surface, but with some reflection, all of those kinds of statements are ultimately a statement of our priorities. And as believers committing to growth and grace in each other, we should lovingly push back against those. It's one of the ways that we help each other grow in grace. Most often, this comes down to finding time versus making time. I don't know about you, but I don't often find time. Like, I don't often go throughout my day and be like, oh, look, here's an hour. I didn't know what I could do with this, but here we go. I have an extra hour today. I find extra time about as often as I find extra money. Instead, just like in budgeting, I must make time for what's most important to me. I must have a plan for ensuring my time goes to those things that are most important. And for the Christian, spending time in God's word must be on that list. So, church, ask one another about this in your base groups, in your, in your getting together for coffee, and your text messages throughout the week, and so on. Ask questions like What does your time of personal worship look like? What are you reading this week? What is God teaching you in His word? Or how can I help come alongside you as you make this a priority? Psalm 119 describes God's word as a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Psalm 19, his word is more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. Church, let that be true of each of us as a people that we desire God's word like that. And if we aren't there now, then confess that to someone and ask them to help you grow, grow in grace in this area. Let us be a people that knows God's word, obeys God's word, and freely speaks God's word to one another. The third call of Ezra 3 to us this morning is to celebrate God's grace to take note of all that he has done for us and is doing in us, and then to respond in heartfelt, affection-stirred worship. Note from the beginning of the altar to the very end of the chapter, this passage is shot through with worship. The offering of this burnt offering, the observing of this feast, the giving of money, and the gathering of praise at the laying of the foundation. We see this reach a crescendo in verse 10 as the laying of the foundation results in the response of heartfelt, affection-stirred, joyous worship. Bring out the trumpets. Bring out the cymbals. Our God is doing a work among us, and we're going to celebrate that. And note here that this is no cold, rote lifeless, going through the motions, but this is a people stirred by what God is doing among them, stirred in their minds, yes, but that necessarily impacts their emotions, and therefore it finds emotional expression. Here we should certainly be careful not to be overly prescriptive with what it must look like for us to be expressive in worship. Certainly this is an area where our practice can rightly vary by culture and personality. For one, I'd rather you leave your symbols at home on a Sunday morning, so but what we can't do, what we can't do is act like following Jesus is only a thing of the mind of the of the rational of truth and doctrine and that it doesn't affect our emotions. So we may express our joy in our own way, but we better feel some joy when we reflect on God's grace. That better do something to our emotions. The same goes for the full gamut of emotions. To truly believe God's truth necessarily means being affected by that truth. In some corners of church world, some act as if emotions are bad. Truth is the real stuff of Christian faith and emotions are then taken as the opposite of that and therefore bad or at the very least unimportant. I would submit to you that that is an unbiblical view of humanity in general that is more formed by the culture's assumptions of rationalism than you may realize. And I'd be happy to unpack that further for you if you'd like. Emotions untethered from truth are indeed a problem. Our emotions must be tethered to truth, but if you show me a man or woman filled up with God's truth and unaffected by it, I'll say there's some kind of disconnect. That's a red flag that needs further attention. The Bible is replete with God's people erupting in emotional responses to God's truth. Read the Psalms. Read Paul's doxology in Romans 11, 11 chapters reflecting on this, and then he just erupts in praise. Read it cover to cover, and in every part you will see that our faith affects not only our head, but also our heart and also our hands. Going on in the text, we should note from verse 11 that the specific song that they sing is one loaded with history. And they and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Of note, the word here translated steadfast love has the tones of covenant love. But this song here is the same song given by David to Asaph in First Chronicles 16, the one that we opened the service with. At that time, that was given by David to Asaph when the ark was brought into the tent, which was then the temporary temple. And it's the song sung again in Solomon's day in 2 Chronicles 5, 13, when the ark is then taken into the temple. And it's the very song Jeremiah prophesied would be sung as he prophesied the exile, but then he also promised the return home after. Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 10 through 12. It says, Thus says the Lord, In this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride." The voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is Waste without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. As Israel joyously celebrates God's grace in worship, they are remembering the covenant faithfulness to them, and they are remembering that God's plan to work through them goes on. So they sing out joyously except for those who don't. In verse 12 through 13, we see that the laying of the temple foundation does have a bit of a mixed response. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. For some, rather than being stirred in joyous worship by this new progress in God's plan, however small it may be at the moment, they're more overcome with disappointment, longing for the glory days of the past. It just doesn't look like they thought it would. Though the prophet Haggai would not enter the scene for another 17 years, we do see here that in in, in Haggai, we see that this line of thinking persists on into his day. Haggai would come rebuking those that see this work of God as too small to be considered worthy of joy. Haggai chapter 2 verse 3 says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? is it not as nothing in your eyes Likewise Zechariah dealt also with those who would be disappointed by the day of small things Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10 says for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel This thread of being disappointed, of looking at this work that God's doing in bringing his people back from exile, this thread of being disappointed carries on throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we see in Haggai and Zechariah as well. Church, do you ever feel that kind of disappointment? I know I should be grateful for the way that the Lord is working, but I just thought it would be more. If we're honest, I think we can all relate to that at some point, both individually and corporately. Like, I just thought I'd be further along in my faith by now. I just thought I'd be over this or over that. I was just hoping the church would be better at fill in the blank. Here we see that it was primarily the older folks who longed for the former glory days of Israel. And maybe that resonates with some of you who can look back to seemingly better days in the American church landscape. You can look back to a day where the church was more central in society. You can look back longingly for a day where seemingly everyone was attending church somewhere. You can look back to a day when Little League wouldn't dare schedule a game on a Sunday. And there indeed is so much to lament there. But hear me, do not weep, because God's not done. Jesus will build his church, and if we're not careful, we can spend too much time looking in the rear view at a day that is long gone, And miss the opportunity to roll up our sleeves and be part of what God is doing now in building his church. So that we can then ensure that there's a faithful witness of the gospel left behind for generations to come. The older folks, here's the thing. The older folks, they're not wrong in their assessment. This temple didn't match the former glory of Solomon's temple. The older folks were not wrong in their assessment. They're wrong in their focus. We can weep for the past glory days, or we can turn our eyes to celebrate the joyous hope of the remnant that he is continuing to work through. But you certainly don't have to be older to struggle with disappointment in the church. I dare say that the majority of my 20s were marked by a constant wrestling with what I thought the church should be, and then what I looked around and saw. None of us are immune to that kind of disappointment. And if we could just really be super honest, maybe you even struggle with Antioch saying, it just doesn't look like what I thought it would. It's not going like I pictured it in my mind. That's Okay. If you haven't had that thought yet, then just give it some time and I'm sure you will. By God's grace, I've been constantly encouraged in all the way He's working in our church in just five and a half months. But I do know my own heart enough to know that I won't live in that place for forever. There will be a day, there will be a day when I look around and say, I just thought it would look different. And on that day, I can set my gaze to the glass half empty, to the fictitious church I created in my mind, or I can set my gaze to the glass half full and seek to love and serve the real, true, actual church that God is building here. The reality we all have to grab hold of is that individually and corporately, there will always be a now. And a not yet in this life. We'll never stop being in process in this life. There's a now that promises that we can have real victory now. We can make real progress now. We can continue to grow in grace now. We should be corporately growing now as a family that more and more reflects God's image. But there's always a not yet left for us. Ways that he is still working. Ways that are still left for the future. And we do well to hold both in tension. If we expect too much from the now, we can find ourselves cynical and disillusioned. And if we expect too little from the now, we can find ourselves complacent and lax in pursuing in pursuing all that God has called us to. From now until our very last breath, the chisels stay out and nearby because we will always need to continue, to be continued growing into the image of Christ, chipping away at the flesh. We'll never see, we'll never see a perfected Christian in this life. And therefore, we'll never see a perfected church in this life. So we can expect to face times of disappointment, but listen, don't lose sight of the beauty of being part of God's people. Here in Ezra and Nehemiah, God's people might struggle feeling like they're living in a day of small things, but even this faint ember of a new beginning is being fanned into flames to accomplish God's purposes. As we we read this from Ezra chapter 3, it might feel like We find ourselves pulled off the highway on an obscure exit, on an obscure back road, reading an obscure story. But this back road does lead to the eight-lane highway of God's plan of redemption going forth. Ezra 3 points the way to that eight-lane highway of God's grand redemptive purposes. It points the way by the echoes of Solomon's temple that remind us that this is a continuity with the people of God. It, it, It points to that highway by the references to King David and by the references to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, who are both, Zerubbabel and Shealtiel are both named in the line of Jesus in Matthew 1. If we go back to Jeremiah 33, we find that God's promise of grace after the exile looked beyond just bringing his people back into the land. It looked ultimately to Jesus who would come and be the righteous branch that comes to dwell on the throne and multiply God's people by calling to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jeremiah 33 verse 14 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And skipping down, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The people might feel like they're living in a day of small things, but this small thing is going to be used by God for his grand redemptive purposes. And church, listen, we know that we'll face times of disappointment in this life, Okay? Disappointment in ourselves, disappointment in the church, looking around, just wishing that we were further along in the process. But don't lose sight of the beauty of living where and when we now live. We live this side of the cross. We live with all of the now benefits of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We live indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We live as part of his beautiful, in-process family called the church, and he's not done with us yet. Even in process, even in process, we have much to celebrate. We have a beautiful mission, a beautiful mission where we have the privilege of announcing the good news that though humanity fell into sin, God, by his grace, has sent Jesus to be crucified on the cross in our place for our sin. That's a beautiful mission. It may be a hard mission. It may be one that provokes like guilt and conviction in our lives. But before any of that, let's not lose sight of the fact that it's a beautiful mission. There's a broken world longing to be put back together. And we have the privilege of announcing that God is doing just that. We also have the beautiful word of God. In spite of our rejection of him, God has revealed himself to us by his word. That's something to celebrate and cherish now. Likewise, we have the beautiful opportunity to gather together in worship. Every week when we gather to worship, we proclaim that while sin scattered us all from his presence, God is gathering a people back to himself. Every faithful local church family gathering all around the world proclaims that God's still gathering a people for himself to give him the worship that he is due. If you're here today and you've never committed your life to Jesus, then first of all, we're glad that you're here. But this is my plea to you today. The gospel is the announcement. It's the announcement of true news It's the announcement that every one of us needs the forgiveness of sin and the freedom from being enslaved to sin that Jesus accomplished by his cross. We all need that, and every Christian in this room is staking their life on that truth, that we need that. And if you haven't trusted in that, you need that work too. And listen, maybe you find this good news hard to believe Because you've experienced some of God's people's shortcomings, okay? Like you've experienced hurt from other Christians. That can be real, and I'm sorry for that. But don't lose the plot. God's people will never be perfect in this life. So whatever real wrongs you've experienced from other Christians doesn't invalidate the gospel message, It accords with the reality that we all desperately need Jesus to forgive us and to free us. If you're here today and you want to know more about following Jesus, then we'd love to talk with you more about that. For the rest of us here that have already trusted in Christ, then here's the call for you today. What do you do when God has called you to do something? You get after it. Church, let's just go from here reflecting on that. Individually, as a family, as a base group, church-wide, how are we doing and getting after what God has called us to do? What areas of our lives do we need a renewed commitment to get after his purposes for us so that we can see what we already see more and more. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir us now by your word. Lord, help us to be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. So Father, help us to go from here reflecting on anything that you might be calling us to to do any renewed commitment for each of us lord father i do pray that you would stir up in our base groups little communities that encourage one another to to grow in grace that encourage one another to help others follow jesus and more and more encourage one another in the work of seeing your gospel go forth to those that don't know you Lord, would you do that work in us? Father, would you raise up in our midst uh, faithful examples of people going with the gospel that we can all learn from as a church family? Would you raise up more and more of those in our midst? And Father, for any ways that this provokes guilt and shame, Lord, I pray that you would help us to distinguish between the conviction of your spirit and any kind of legalistic shame. And Lord, so I pray that we would latch on to that which your spirit is convicting us of, but Lord, do not give this, uh, do not let this be an opportunity for guilt and shame and legalism to hold us back. Help us to all recognize that we are propelled forward by your grace. So Lord, I pray that you continue to do this work in us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.